Hello, this is Pizzicato Ost, and I am Leo Javetsky. Today we discuss Ferenc Liszt's symphonic poem Mazeppa, created in the years 1847 to 1851. Now, there's a lot to explain before we get to the actual music of the piece, so be patient. We will say a bit about the life of Liszt, just some scattered facts, otherwise we'll never finish this episode. We will give an idea of what a symphonic poem is and where it derives from. And um, we will give an overview of who this Mazeppa guy actually is. And then we can talk about the music of the piece. So the symphonic poems of Franz Liszt or Ferenc Liszt, whatever you want to call them, are a series of 13 orchestral works. With Liszt, we usually do not use opus numbers, and uh, mostly we just know the works by name and key sometimes. However, there is a catalog that is considered to be the main source for Liszt, made by Humphrey Searle, and uh, the numbers of the symphonic poems in the catalog are coded as S95 to 107. These works, in a way, helped establish the genre of orchestral program music, compositions that are written to illustrate a, an extra musical plan derived from a play, a poem, a painting, or a work of nature. Here is the ending of the symphonic poem Le Prelude.
This was the BBC Philharmonic under Gian Andrea Nozeda with the ending of Liszt's symphonic poem Le Prelude. These final fanfares of the piece we've just heard um, were used in the 40s in two completely different purposes. Here's one. Aus dem Führer Hauptquartier für 3. Februar 1943. Das Oberkommando der Wehrmacht gibt bekannt. This was the news bulletins by the Reichsrundfunkgesellschaft during the Nazi regime. The fanfare would cue the announcer to say, Das Oberkommando der Wehrmacht gibt bekannt. The Supreme Command of the Armed Forces announces. After the war, of course, this music was almost banned in Germany. And here's the second 1940s use of the piece. Chapter 4. Emperor Ming, rejoicing in the belief that Flash and his party have been destroyed, intercepts a radio message from Flash to his father, saying he has discovered Polarite, an antidote for the death dust with which Ming is bombarding the Earth. Ming and these were the opening titles of the science fiction movie series Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe. Okay, enough with Les Preludes for now. Now, we ask ourselves, what is it that makes a symphonic poem something new? And who needs it anyway? What is it? Let's do a quick historical research. 
Now, classical music begins to gain public prominence in Western Europe in the late 18th century, mostly through the establishment of concerts by music societies in uh, cities such as Leipzig. And the subsequent press coverage of these events, which arises interest. This was mostly a consequence of the Industrial Revolution, which brings changes to the early 19th century lifestyles of the working masses. The lower and middle classes begin to take an interest in the arts, which previously had been only enjoyed by the clergy and the aristocracy. Now, in the 1830s, concert halls were still pretty few, and orchestras mostly served in productions of opera. Symphonic works were considered far lower in importance. Um, however, the European music scene underwent a transformation in the 1840s. While aristocrats still held private musical events, public concerts grew as an institution for the middle class, which was growing prosperous and could now afford to attend these events. Um, the interest grew. These concerts were performed at a rapidly increasing number of venues. Programs, um, unlike today, often ran over three hours, um, even if the, the content was, well, something that we modern audience can't imagine. A concert could consist of two or more symphonies, two overtures, vocal, instrumental numbers, duets, and uh, an instrumental concerto, or something similar. Roughly half of the presented music was vocal or vocal in nature. Symphonies by Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven usually would open or conclude the concert. And while these works, of course, were seen as models of great music, they were ultimately less popular than the arias and opera scenes that uh, stood in the middle of these concerts. Here is um, one opera overture that could easily be part of these huge, complex concerts back in the 1840s, but is also quite popular today in concert programming.
this was the overture to Rossini's opera La Gazza Ladra, The Thieving Magpie, first performed in 1817 in Milan. The recording is from an album of Rossini overtures, played by the Chamber Orchestra of Europe under Claudio Abbado. Meanwhile, the future of the symphony as a genre was coming into doubt. Even symphonies by well-known composers of the early 19th century, such as Rossini, Cherubini, Czerny, Clementi, or Weber, were perceived in their own time as standing in the symphonic shadow of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, or some combination of the three. Their operas were much more popular and performed.
this was the overture to Weber's opera Abu Hassan, premiered in Munich in 1811. This is taken from a wonderful recording of Weber overtures with the Philharmonia Orchestra under Wolfgang Zawalisch. Now, while many composers continued to write symphonies during the 1820s and 1830s, there was a growing sense that these works were aesthetically far inferior to Beethoven's. Basically, the whole music world was deeply in the shadow of the German symphonic genius. In a way, it still is now, today. The real question was not so much whether symphonies could still be written, but whether the genre could continue to flourish and grow as it had over the previous half century in the hands of the, um, the first Viennese school. Um, on this count, there was not much optimism as far as we see. Hector Berlioz was the only composer of the time able to grapple successfully with Beethoven's legacy. However, Felix Mendelssohn, Robert Schumann also achieved successes with their symphonies, putting at least a temporary stop to the debate as to whether the genre was dead. Regardless, composers increasingly turned to the more compact form of the concert overture. The main examples here would be Mendelssohn's Overture, um, A Midsummer Night's Dream, or the Hebrides.
This was The Hebrides, or Fingal's Cave, a concert overture by Mendelssohn, and a magical piece that we might be back with in the future episodes. Um, it's taken from a recording of the Gewandhaus Orchestra under Kurt Masur. Ferenc Liszt had attempted to um, write a revolutionary symphony as early as 1830. However, his focus in the early part of his adult life was mostly on his performing career. By 1847, Liszt was famous throughout Europe as a virtuoso pianist. Listomania, a term introduced by poet Heinrich Heine, swept across Europe. The emotional charge of his recitals, making them more like seances than serious musical events. And the reaction of many of the listeners could be characterized as hysterical. Liszt was a natural phenomenon, and people were swayed by him. With his mesmeric personality and long flowing hair, he created a striking stage presence. And there were many witnesses to testify that his playing did indeed raise the mood of an audience to a level of mystical ecstasy. Now, of course, we don't have any recordings of Liszt playing, but uh, let's hear one of his most fiery works for piano, performed by Lang Lang. Thank you. 
This was the famous Campanella from Liszt's Paganini Etudes, played by pianist Lang Lang. You can imagine how audiences would go mad after a performance of this piece by the composer himself. Now, Liszt desired to compose music such as large-scale orchestral works, but just physically lacked the time to do so as a traveling virtuoso. In September 1847, age 36, Liszt gives his last public recital as a paid artist and announces his retirement from the concert platform, where he was active since he was 12. He settles in Weimar, where he had been made the honorary music director in 1842, and starts seriously concentrating on his composition. Weimar, a town in one of the politically and economically least influential German duchy of Saxe-Weimar-Eisenach, held many attractions for Liszt. Goethe and Schiller had both lived there. Weimar had established a theater and an orchestra. The University of Vienna was also nearby. And most importantly, the town's patroness was the Grand Duchess Maria Pavlovna, the sister of Tsar Nikolai I of Russia. This alliance of court, theater, and academia was difficult to resist. Weimar also received its first railway line in 1848, which gives Liszt relatively quick access to the rest of Germany. Let's make a break in talking and listen to one of the pieces of Liszt's Weimar period, the Piano Concerto Number no. 2. We will hear the third movement played by Christian Zimmermann and the Boston Symphony under Seiji Ozawa.
Now, um, Liszt wanted to expand single movement works that would go beyond this concert overture form that had been developed earlier. New wine demands new bottles, he said. The language of music was changing. It seemed pointless to list to contain it in forms that were almost 100 years old. The music of overtures is to inspire listeners to imagine scenes, images, or moods. Liszt intended to combine these programmatic qualities with a scale and musical complexity that is normally reserved for the opening movement of a classical symphony. The opening movement, with its interplay of contrasting themes under sonata form, was normally considered to be the most important part of this symphony. Until he came up with the term symphonic poem, Liszt introduced several of these new orchestral works as overtures. In fact, some of the poems were initially overtures or preludes for other works and were only later expanded or rewritten to a larger scale than an overture. The first version of Tasso, which became one of his most famous symphonic poem, was a, an incidental overture for Goethe's 1790 drama Torquado Tasso, performed for the centenary of Goethe in Weimar. Orpheus, another one of the symphonic poems, was also first performed in Weimar as a prelude to Gluck's opera Orfeo de Euridice. Same goes for Hamlet. This was used as a prelude to the Shakespeare tragedy.
This was a part of Liszt's symphonic poem Hamlet, played again by the BBC Philharmonic with Gian Andrea Nozeda. In uh, developing the symphonic poem, Liszt satisfied some principal aspirations of 19th century music to relate music to the world outside and to elevate instrumental program music to a level higher than that of opera, the genre that was previously regarded as the highest mode of musical expression. In this sense, their historical importance is undeniable. Sibelius and Richard Strauss, Smetana and Dvořák were influenced by them and adapted and developed the genre in their own way. For all their faults, these pieces offer many examples of the pioneering spirit for which Liszt is celebrated. Let us now look closer at the symphonic poem number six, Mazeppa the subject of today's program. Now, if you're a devoted concert and opera goer, you would have heard of at least three Mazeppas, two by Liszt and one by Tchaikovsky. If you're a devoted reader, there's the one by Byron, the one by Voltaire, one by Victor Hugo, and another by Pushkin.
This was The Battle of Poltava, a symphonic piece from Tchaikovsky's opera Mazeppa. It is taken from a full recording of the opera with the Gothenburg uh, Symphony Orchestra under Neme Yarvi. So who's that person who's inspired so many artists? To answer this question, we go back to the second half of the 17th century. And here, there are two legends that are the main information about this character. The earlier one is about a young Polish man who'd been caught red-handed in an adulterous act with a noblewoman. As a punishment, the woman's husband takes Mazepa fully naked as he was, ties him to a horse, and lets the horse ride. The horse, being originally from the Ukraine, rides towards home, carrying the poor naked man. When they reach the land, half dead, the local Cossacks take him into their group. He is educated and fearless. He successfully takes part in their fights against the Tartars. Now, feeling the man's might and charisma with time, they make him their hetman or military leader. The second legend is of the hetman Mazeppa in old age. Trying to get more power and obtain independence for the Ukraine from Russia, he allies with King Charles XII of Sweden against Russian Tsar Peter the Great, but loses his positions and flees to Sweden with the defeated king. Now, while the second legend was the subject of Pushkin's great poem Poltava, the first literary use of Mazeppa is the first, more lyrical legend. And it's used in Voltaire's um, History of Charles XII, King of Sweden, from 1731. This serves as the main inspiration for the Byron poem from 1819, where Mazeppa is called Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know. The uh, poem was very popular in the peak days of Romantic literature, and especially after receiving its French translation. Um, the subject of a beautiful naked young man tied to a raging horse received much attention from painters, the proof to which we can find in various museums today. It is considered that, inspired by one of these paintings, Victor Hugo writes his Mazeppa poem in the cycle Les Orientales. The first part of his poem describes Mazeppa's run across Ukrainian plains. The second part compares Mazeppa to a poet banned from the living world because of his eccentricities. Um, the band poet is attached to the wild horse of his inspiration. The comparison to the poet ends by saying that this crazy trip through suffering finally gives success and glory to the poet. In 1854, in Weimar, Liszt completes his sixth symphony poem, 
under the title Mazeppa. This is first performed on April 16th, the same year. The concert program has the entire Victor Hugo poem accompanying it. You can see the full text of the poem in three languages, the original French, English and German translations in the description for this episode. Liszt seems to be mostly inspired by the first part of the poem and mostly to the analogy of the story of Mazeppa to the life and destiny of an artist. This is a beloved theme in the entire Romantic era. Miserable and helpless after his long torment with the horse, in time he will become a great hetman, just like an artist chained to his horse, his genius, but one day will rise to greatness in triumph. This balance of suffering and triumph is what seems to have affected Liszt a lot. We see a similar case also in Tasso and Prometheus. Now, let's look at all of this in the actual music. I remind you, this is Liszt's symphonic poem number six, Mazeppa. Unlike most of the symphonic poems, Liszt offers no long introduction in Mazeppa. The poem starts directly taking us into the midst of the dramatic events with a sharp chord of the wind section and a tirata of the flutes and a beat of the timpani, a cry or maybe a whip. That's the traditional reading. Yes, that's quite a start that gives us the first um, introduction to the um, events. Now, this is followed by triplets in the string section and even beats of the timpani and later the drum. This all representing the mad chase. setting gets even more eerie with the appearance of chords in the woodwinds, the outbursts of cries in the piccolo, and the descending phrases of the bassoons. gradual entrance of new instruments creates a growing wave and then comes down to give way to a new theme representing the hero. A strict melody filled with pathos is introduced by the low strings 
and the trombones. Even this theme keeps the spirit of the chase in this characteristic rhythm and broad melodic moves. The theme occurs several times, being the only one almost until the end of the piece. This is Liszt's famous monothematism. It first only slightly changes color and instruments, but further into the piece it undertakes a melodic transformation. It goes from heroic, thus following powerful fortissimo of the brass, sighing and suffering um, a very expressively sounding English horn and bass clarinet. It goes with terrible visions along the way, the strings playing con leño or striking the string with the stick of the bow.
and becoming sad and nagging, thus showing the misery of the hero, which is clearly shown in the tone of the English horn and oboes, marked in the score as espressivo dolente, expressively sorrowful. However, the will of the hero is not broken, and his theme comes in the original form again, accompanied by fanfares in the brass. Thank you. 
But what happens here? A loud outburst of the entire orchestra and the beats of the timpani represent the fall off the horse and the end of the chase. We face silence. We hear echoes of the main theme separated by rests as groans and heavy sighs. The hero's theme, proud and powerful as it was, breaks in pain and agony. But here, a sudden tremolo in the strings changes the setting. We hear fanfares slowly growing into a festive march. We hear a new theme. It is supposed to represent a Ukrainian melody, but rhythmically much more reminds of a Hungarian song, not surprising given the uh, composer's nationality. This folk song theme and the marching theme take turn until they appear in full orchestral power, making room for the triumphant coda where we hear the victorious theme of Mazeppa in its bright major key.
after going through Mazeppa's theme again, now triumphant and victorious, a praise to a strong human will, the poem comes to an end, with the rising tirada it started with, but it now supposedly represents an enthusiastic exclamation. Now, I bet you that the, um, the, the main theme of the piece stays as an earworm in your head for quite a while, at least in my head it always stays for, for days. All the bits that we were listening to in the last part of the program of Mazeppa were from a recording with the Wiener Philharmonica under Giuseppe Sinopoli. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We would be very grateful for likes, shares, comments, and questions, anything that could make our program better. We will be back with more music soon. And for now, bye-bye.